can be seated. <clears throat> Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7 tonight. And I uh, want to thank you for being here. I know we've got a Christmas parade going on in town, and maybe um, in future years we might find a way to cut away on a Sunday night and instead of having service, uh, be out in our community serving in something like that. And so I'll try and find a way to do that next year. I know that's probably where some folks are tonight, and some maybe just can't make it, and that's just okay. We are here. The Bible will be open. God's Word will be proclaimed and I hope it'll be profitable for us. And so we're going to find our place in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. And I want us to find our place. We're going to cover the whole chapter. So I won't read uh, like I normally do uh, the text that we're covering. But I hope that you've had a chance uh, to read it this week. Again, I want to put out a plug. Um, every week I send out a Sunday preview email that gives you the texts that we'll be covering in the sermons the following Sunday. And if you don't currently receive that email, that means I don't have your email. If you would like to receive that email so that you can read God's word ahead of time, soak in the passage that we'll be covering each week, please uh, fill out a connection card, text me with your email. I would be happy to add you to that list. And every once in a while, I throw a little surprise trivia or something in there for you to earn a gift card. So uh, that might be worth your time too. So um, would encourage you to plug into those emails and don't tune those out because you never know what might be in there. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this. Um, it's been told to me, especially in leadership uh, situations. Um, I've been told, I don't know how many times, this statement. People don't like change. Have you heard that? Have you said that? People don't like change. Well, this probably won't surprise you, but I disagree. People love change. People love to change their hair. People like to change their furniture. People like to change their house. People like to change their job. Some people want to change their uh, marital status. They want to get married rather than be single. They want to have another kid. That's changed. They want a different car. That's changed. They want to move to a different location. That's changed. They want to change their health situation and get over something that is setting them back. They, people love change. They may not like all types of change, but people like change. People want change. Would you agree that in most of those situations, people want change? right? Every one of you, you're sitting here tonight, and I guarantee you there is a list of things you wish you could change in your life. There's a list of things. Maybe you, could, you wish you could go back and change some mistakes you made, some sins you've committed. Maybe you wish you could change some certain things about your circumstances or finances. You wish you could change how things are going in your extended family. You, you wish you could change some things in your marriage, right? And I think the reality is, is that a lot of us, here's what we think. We, we think this, and it could be a thousand different things that we think this about, but here's what we, we get uh, into thinking. We think life would be better if. How many of you found yourself saying that? Life would be better if, right? Life would be a lot better 
if my boss would step up to the plate and give me a nice pay raise this year, right? 2024, it's the year of the pay raise, baby, right? Life would be a lot better if we could move to a different location because we're kind of in a bad part of town. Life would be better if I had more money. Or sometimes what we think, and this may or may not be true, um, we think I could maybe serve God better if. I know people who thought, if I was married, then maybe I could do more for the Lord. If I had more money, then I could give more to God or do more to bless people. Um, If my schedule changed, then I would have more time to serve the Lord or to be a help to my church. Our passage tonight, believe it or not, has some advice for someone who's thinking those things. And the advice that we're gonna get from 1 Corinthians 7 is different than you and I would expect. Because our passage tonight, here's what Paul's gonna teach us. Paul is going to teach us that rather than hoping for change, to honor God wherever life has brought you. Rather than hoping that you can honor God more if something changed, instead of hoping change happens and thinking that you can honor God better if life changed to instead take where you are and honor God where you are. The way that 1 Corinthians 7 is laid out, I want you to pay attention. This is important for you to understand that I'm not just pulling this out of a hat, okay? 1 Corinthians 7 works out this way. It talks about marriage, singleness, and then we're going to read verses 17 through 20 that talk about circumcision and slavery of all things. And then it talks about, again, marriage and singleness. And so what we see is that this whole passage is driving across one big idea, and Paul is applying it to married people, single people, even slaves. He's applying this idea to every situation in life. And so what I want you to do is I think verses 17 through 20, they're that middle, they're the heart of the passage, they're the principal core that Paul is borrowing from in all of his instructions. So I want us to look at verses 17 through 20 and read those together tonight. Look down at 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 17. But as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Now here's the principle. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Now, what what Paul is doing here, first of all, we need to understand some terms here. The word calling, you and I, if we grow up at youth camp, what do often we hear that word calling applied to? Well, to be a missionary or to be called to ministry. That's not how Paul's talking about. He's talking about your salvation. He's talking about your situation of life when you encountered God's salvation. And he's speaking on a really broad spectrum, right? In the first half of the chapter, he's talking about marriage and singleness. And in this section, he's talking about circumcision 
and slavery, which is what he's going to talk about in the next few verses after we read. And so there's this huge, broad spectrum. And here's what Paul is saying. Wherever God met you in life, wherever God found you in life at your salvation, he's saying this, find contentment where you are. Honor God where he's placed you in life. Don't rush to change things thinking that the grass will always be greener on the other side. Honor God in whatever situation he's placed you. Some of us have heard an old saying that really I think is the core of this passage. What's the saying? Bloom where you're planted. That's what Paul's saying. Bloom where you're planted. Honor God where you've been planted because the grass isn't always greener. The grass isn't always greener. And he's also gonna address that just because your life situation changed, it does not mean that you are more able to honor God if your circumstances changed. So you don't need your life to change to honor God. You just need to step up to honor God. You just need to do your responsibility. And then Paul's going to show us this at the end of the, the message tonight, that your life may change. God may change your circumstances, and that's okay. You are not chained in a lot of situations to your circumstances. Just because I say bloom where you're planted doesn't mean you can't ever change. But what Paul is saying is that if life changes, your responsibility to honor God does not change. Okay? And what I want us to see is that this principle of honoring God wherever he's placed you, Paul's going to apply it to marriage, to singleness, and to other situations of life, okay? Marriage, singleness, and other situations of life. And so here's what Paul's saying in verses 1 through 6, in verses 10 through 14, and really some other places in the passage. Here's what he's saying. Here's how you bloom your planet. In marriage, here's how you honor God. Give yourself fully to your spouse, and stay together for life. That's how you honor God in the marriage he's placed you. You could have been saved while you're married, and you're now married to someone who's an unbeliever. Paul's writing to people who have that situation. You could be married to someone who's changed dramatically, and your marriage is not doing well. But here's what Paul says. If you're in a marriage, it's not your prerogative to break free from that, other than some special circumstances that we'll cover here in a little bit. It is your job to honor God in the marriage that he has placed you. Not to think that you need to change your circumstances. And if I was married to someone else, life would be better. Right? And this whole passage starts off by talking about giving ourselves to our spouse fully in the sexual relationship. Look at verse number one of chapter number seven. This is a fitting follow-up to a theology of the body because that's exactly where Paul starts. He says in verse number one, and, and, and we need to do some work here on the translation. He says, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. What's Paul doing here? He's answering a letter they wrote to him. And he's quoting something they said in their letter. They said this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now let me help you here. We uh, are not using the word touch in our day the same way Paul is using it. The word touch, quite literally, indicates an idea for burning passion. Okay, it's not like, you know, what you used to do your sister, right? I'm touching you. I'm not touching you. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
That's not the type of touch he's talking about. Do I need to explain more? A touch with burning passion. He's speaking about something a little bit more than touching, okay? And what the Corinthians were saying is though we recognize in chapter number five, there were some people in their congregation who had this very worldly idea of how they could just flaunt their body and give their body away to anybody, maybe prostitution or this man who is in an affair, there was another group of people in the Corinthian congregation who had the opposite view. In their mind, they were borrowing from uh, Greek uh, philosophers who said that it is better, it is a higher way of life to not engage in physical relationships, even if you're married. So that's what some of the people in the Corinthian church espoused. They thought that you could actually achieve a higher plane of spirituality if you were not involved in a physical relationship. And so some of these couples, they were married, but they would not be together physically because some of them were dumb enough to believe that somehow that helped their spirituality. So Paul is writing to correct that because what his concern is in verses one through six is that if you separate from your spouse physically, you are actually tempting them to sin And number two, you have a wrong view of who has authority over your body. Listen to some of these commands in verses three, four, and five. If you're married here, you you need need to listen to this. Our, Our culture fights so hard against this. Let the husband, verse number three, render unto the wife due benevolence. Likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Again, this is speaking physically. Verse number three basically means this. It's your job to fulfill your marital duty to give your body to your spouse. That's what Paul's saying. That's literally what it says. Verse number four is very strong. I want you to read verse number four. The wife hath not power of her own body. And all the feminists screamed in in, in terror because this is absolutely the contradiction to what our culture preaches. But what Paul is saying is that your body's not just the Lord's, which is what chapter number six says, that when you enter into a marital relationship, remember, you're one flesh. Your body is now your spouse's. They have power. With that word, it's exousia. It means authority. Your spouse has authority over your body. Now, again, I'll explain this here in a minute. Verse number five says, okay, if your spouse has authority over your body, if it's your marital duty to give yourself physically to your spouse, verse number five kind of wraps this all in a bow and says this, defraud not one the other. Don't hold back, right? Except it be with consent for a time. By the way, Paul believed in consent, okay? What is he saying here? You're not supposed to hold back physically from each other unless you both have come to terms that, that in the same way you would abstain from food for fasting, maybe a husband and wife would choose to abstain from being together physically in a fast. But both need to be on the same page, okay? I have a feeling most people who hold back from their spouse, it's not because they came to a mutual agreement. It was best. It's because one person wants to manipulate the other person to give them their way, Right? And so Paul says, don't defraud each other. That's a pretty strong word. Defraud? Fraud? That's pretty strong. Don't defraud each other. And then he says in verse number five, and come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Here's what he's saying. If you hold back your body physically from your spouse, intentionally, here's what he's saying. You are allowing your spouse to be tempted by Satan. Satan. 
Now, I, I gotta be clear, there's more passages in the Bible that speak about this. Luckily, God addresses everything, especially this part of life and marriage. Think about Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5 is a great passage about this. Proverbs 5, you know, has this very strong warning uh, written to a young man, to maybe this man's son who's writing Proverbs, probably Solomon. And he's warning this young man of the danger of sex outside of marriage. But where a lot of people stop their quoting of Proverbs 5 is in verse number 15, where this concerned father figure is writing to his son. And here's what he says. Here's, here's how you help yourself with the temptation. He says to his son, drink waters out of your own cistern. Rejoice in the wife of thy youth. And if I read the rest of that passage, all of you would be blushing because it gets very, very detailed. The Bible celebrates this part of marriage. The Bible's not silent about this part of marriage. And Paul is very clear that this powerful gift in marriage is not something you have the right, husbands and wives, to hold back from your spouse. If you're doing that, you're not honoring God where you're at. You are to give yourself to your spouse because it is not your body, it is theirs. Now, time out. This idea that your spouse has authority of your body can, in our modern minds, be fraught with difficulties. We can be very concerned about that because it is teaching like this misapplied that has been used to justify abuse. Are we tuning in tonight? Give, give me a head nod. I, this is a tough topic. I need cooperation here. Are you, are you with me? This idea has been misapplied to justify abuse. Okay? I don't think, I, I think it's pretty reasonable to think that Paul is not allowing men or women a, a, a pass on abusing their wife because, well, after all, I have authority over your body. No, clearly not. That's not what he means. There's many other commands, I don't know, about love, which is selfless and without thought of yourself, right, that govern and, and, and put boundaries on this. But the implication in this passage is clear, that the physical relationship in marriage is not something, particularly wives, that you get to just hold back because you're mad and you want your husband to figure out his side of the deal. Now, husbands or the other person in the relationship, let me say a word to you. It's not even your right to say, well, I'm gonna demand this from you, but I'm gonna be a jerk outside of the bedroom, but I'm gonna demand these other things inside the bedroom. That's not how it works in marriage either. We don't hold money over our spouse's head. I hope, Right? I guess in some marriages, that's a thing. We don't hold food over their head. Why on earth would we think we can hold this over their head? That's what Paul's addressing here. And the problem with that is ultimately, we are allowing them to be tempted to find fulfillment in other places. Now, again, I'm not saying that if someone commits an affair or is dealing with pornography, that that's your fault. That is ultimately their choice. But we must be careful because God, is, that God has decided that this is where a man and a woman find fulfillment in that area of life. It's in the context of marriage. And I'll say this like I said it this morning. If there are issues in this part of your marriage, if one or both of you is struggling in this area, you have not just this issue to work on, that is, is, is 
indicating that you have other problems in your marriage that need to be worked out. And I would say that this is a very uncomfortable subject to have a talk about in church, number one. You think I like talking about this? No. No, I don't. (laughs) I'd much rather preach chapter eight tonight. But it's even more uncomfortable to talk about with your spouse. But I ain't that old, but I've been around in counseling enough to know this is a huge, huge problem in a lot of marriages. And it, it could generate some helpful things if people get together and talk. And instead by saying, here, he, you, you're not doing this right, maybe here's how you can have a productive conversation about the subject. Hey, husband, wife, I've noticed that we don't. Can you tell me why what I'm doing that might be causing that? Is it that I'm not being kind to you? Is it that uh, there's other things going on? Is it that you're overstressed and you're too busy? Um, And by the way, if you're too busy to give yourself to your spouse or you're too tired, then maybe you should cut some other things out of your life, right? So Paul says, if you want to honor God in marriage, you need to give yourself fully to your spouse. And then he says in verse number 10, that the other way you honor God in marriage is by staying together for life. Look at verse 10. Unto the married I command, yet not I, But the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, right? He says, let not the wife depart from her husband. And again, Paul is writing here to people who are married to non-Christians because here's what they would have thought. If I leave my spouse who's not a Christian, number one, um, I could have a happier marriage probably. In my own mind, if I'm married to someone who shares the deepest values I hold, who my God is, maybe I would be happier if I left them. Number two, they're thinking, hey, I would be a lot less weighed down if instead of having a spouse who's against everything I'm doing for the Lord, and instead I had a spouse who's for everything I'm doing for the Lord. And yet Paul writes to people who are engaged in these type of marriages, and he says, do not leave. Now, again, he's going to qualify that, and I'll get there in a minute. But I think we have to remind ourselves, even if we're in a bad marriage, even if we're in a bad marriage, that it could be really tempting to think that life would be better if, or I could honor God more if, but what we have to recognize is God has already spoken. God has said that the way you honor him in marriage is by staying and sticking it out, if at all possible. That's how you honor God. And I'm convinced, I thought about this as I wrote this message, that there will be people who on the outside, they are totally unimpressive to the world when it comes to what they've given and done for Christ. But in the quiet moments of their home, they have stuck it out and they have been faithful to their spouse and they've taken, not a physical beating, but they've taken a lot of junk in their life because they've been married to someone who cares nothing about God or as a terrible husband, or as a terrible wife, and yet they've done everything in their power to be a God-honoring husband or a God-honoring wife, and they will stand before God, I'm convinced, rewarded richly because they honored God in that private part of their life for a very, very long time. I've met several, several women and men who are gems, in my opinion, because they may have somebody who genuinely is hard to deal with. But they've honored God 
and they've stuck it out. The next section of our passage tells us how to honor God in singleness. Now, many of you are about to check out mentally, and I'm going to encourage you, if you're married, you need to listen to what this says about singleness, because you know single people, don't you? So you need to listen to what the Bible says about singleness, because you might really need to hear it. In singleness, Paul says, here's how you honor God, and this applies to people who maybe are younger and have not been married yet, but he also talks about widows, Paul says, if you want to honor God as a single person, you honor him by giving yourself fully, not to your spouse, but to serving God. Since you don't have a spouse that you have to give yourself fully to, you give yourself fully to God. Listen to verses seven through nine. He says, for I would that all men, he said all of them, all men, were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this man, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows. What does verse 8 say? It is what? Good. For them, if they abide, even as I. Some of us married people need to figure out our theology a little better because we've said, oh, maybe the exact opposite of this. We said, you know, it'd be a lot better if you got married. Or we made people think that their life is less than if they're single. I I led a singles group um, in my previous ministry, so I'm a little bit sensitive to this. But I've watched how a lot of people that I discipled um, felt pressure from well-meaning church people, sometimes their parents. And because these people seemed almost more eager than they were to get married, it made them feel like it wasn't good to be single. But yet Paul says something completely the opposite, doesn't he? He says, it is good for people to stay single. Now that's interesting that Paul would say that. I find myself occasionally saying in a lighthearted way, married life is the best life. And I love being married. I love it. But that doesn't mean that it's better than being single. Now, our culture says something totally different, right? Our culture says you need somebody to be happy. Now, they don't like marriage, but they certainly like everything else that comes with marriage. Now, why would Paul say, we need to ask ourselves this, why would Paul say it's better to be single? Well, verse number 32 shows us. Look at verse 32 where he picks this topic up again. He said, but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord how he may please the Lord. But he that is married, he says, cares for the things of this world, how he may please his wife. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're not married, you've got this block of time that you would normally dedicate to a spouse that you can use to honor God. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul believes that singleness is good because singleness gives you the freedom to give more time to God. Now, married people, don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged that you, and don't read Paul's words incorrectly, that we care for the things of this world as if that's some sort of less than calling. My friend, there is almost no better use of your time than to love your family, to love your spouse, to love your kids well. That's a wonderful investment of your time. I hope to God that this church and the ministries of this church never get in between you and your family. As your pastor, you can always tell me that. That's why I don't mind on a Christmas Eve not having Sunday night. There's some pastors who think that's just wicked, but I don't care because I think it's good for you to spend time with your family. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? 
But what Paul is saying is that those who are single, those who are single in this room, a few of you, I, I want you to listen very closely. Paul says that singleness is good, not because you can use your time for things other than God. No, that's not wrong either. Everyone should have a hobby or two. But what Paul is saying is you should ask yourself this question. Is the time that I normally would invest in my family, am I using that extra time for the Lord? Are the finances, being a single normally comes with less financial responsibility. Are the finances that I have that aren't taken up by feeding another mouth or two, am I using those to give those to God? What Paul is saying is that the blessing of singleness is found in giving more to God. Paul is saying this, and we married people need to hear him well. We need to hear him well, so please listen. Single people are an asset to the kingdom of God. When they do life right, they are an asset to God's kingdom. And again, single people need to say, hey, listen, I need to look at my life and say that the time that maybe these folks are going and playing catch with their kids and, and needing to be home a certain amount of nights a week to maintain a healthy relationship between them and their spouse, hey, I've got time to give my life to some other things that can bless and help people. And I wanna encourage you, church family, to let Paul's theology govern how you think about single people, okay? I've met not one Christian, but multiple, who think that if someone's not married, then they're not qualified to be in church leadership. They mistake what Paul says uh, to be a husband of one wife when he's talking about um, pastors or deacons. Now, I think there's some practical benefits as a pastor to being married. There's, there's several practical benefits. But it's not a biblical requirement. Literally, what that word means is a one-woman man. It's just talking about a man's ethics with women. Do you think, really, those who maybe have been taught this or heard this or thought this, do you really think the same apostle who said he would much rather men remain single then make a requirement that those men whom he'd much rather remain single cannot be pastors or deacons? Well, that would be silly. It's the same guy who wrote both of those. And he himself was not married at least when he wrote all this stuff. And I don't know, our savior wasn't married either. And so single people are not a, a less than force in the church. No, they are an asset to the kingdom. I wanna encourage you if you're married to be very careful about how you talk about marriage with those who are single. To not be always asking them if they've got a girlfriend or if they've got a prospect or when they're gonna go on a date because what you don't realize, and again, some people can be sensitive, but we just need to be as Christians loving about this and work around this, that the more you ask those questions, the more unintentionally, listen well, you make them feel like they are less than for not having a spouse. You gotta be really careful. Parents, you have to be so careful. I know we got parents with adult children here, and we got a bunch of parents who may have adult children in 20 years, okay? So I'm saying it to all of y'all. You may have a kid, who doesn't get married till they're 25, 26, 29, 35, 40. Listen, I know you want grandbabies. It's not the end of the world. Paul says, he says, he says actually, if, if he were sitting with your son or daughter in your living room, you know what he would tell them? I think you should stay single. That's what Paul said. So many of us parents, we, we say the opposite, don't we? And again, married life is great. I'm not dissing on it. 
But we need to be careful not to make single people feel less than in the church and not to make single people feel less than in our families, right? I would encourage you also as well, those who are married and have families here, when holidays come, to consider the single people in your life who may not have a spouse that they enjoy Christmas with, who who may not have a family to eat Thanksgiving with. One of the greatest joys of our, our life here in Western Kansas, we don't have family out here. That's not a mystery to any of you. I have to drive 14 hours to have a meal with my family. But, but God has been so good that, and I'm not bragging, I'm really not. I'm just trying to help you because I've, I've sat across tables from people who literally for years, no one in their church thought this poor soul has nowhere to go on Thanksgiving. They have no family to sit with on Christmas Day. I just want to encourage y'all, think about that. When Thanksgiving comes next year, look around our church and say, who in our church is single? Do you know? Do you know who in our church is single and widowed? Do you know about the men in our church who've lost their wives? Have you asked them if they have plans for the holidays? Right? I'm just telling you, this is a way that we can minister to the single in our families and in our church. We need to be careful. We need to recognize they're not less than, but also they have unique ways that we can be a blessing to them as families. Okay? But then Paul's more broad. He doesn't just talk singleness and marriage. He talks about everything in life. He says this in verses 17 through 20. In whatever situation God has placed you, trust he has a purpose and honor him in that season. I think Paul gets really broad. He talks about circumcision. I'm not going to spell out what that is. You all know. But that's a physical situation someone found themselves in at salvation. And of course, we know this was a very divisive thing in the church community. There were people who made others feel like who were from a Gentile background that they weren't honoring God as much. And so they're literally thinking they need to have this minor surgical procedure to honor God better. But what Paul writes, it says, no, you don't need to change your body to honor God better. No, no, wherever God found you, just honor him where you're at. He's writing to slaves. No, 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 slaves, not employees. I know some of y'all feel like slaves, maybe at this time of year. He's writing to real deal slaves, okay? It's not quite like American slavery. Very distinct differences. If you want to read up on it, I could give you some resources. But he's writing to people who are not paid employees per se. They are slaves, and this is crazy. You know what Paul says to them in verse number 21? Art thou called being a servant? Were you saved as a slave? Care not for it. Don't worry about it. Now, some of us Americans are like, well, Paul should have been more anti-slavery. But he's writing to people who thought that as a slave, they couldn't do as much for God as someone who's free. And so they're thinking in their mind, do I need to run away? Do I need to find someone to finance me, to buy me out of the slavery? Most slavery was caused by debt. And Paul's saying, don't worry about it. Don't be stressed about it. Are, are you in a bad financial spot? Do you wish, do you wish, man, man if, I had a, if I had a six-figure salary, man, I could do so much for our church. I'd love to give more to the church. I would love if I had a, if I was retired, you know, some, some of y'all are a couple years away from retiring, like, oh, the day I could retire, right? I could do so much more with my time. Can I just help you this evening? 
If you're in a place in life where life just isn't what you wish it was, you know what Paul says? Don't stress about it. Honor God where you're at. You got a cruddy boss, honor God where you're at. You got a rough job, don't be a bum employee, honor God where you're at. Don't stress about it. Don't stress about it. Honor God where he's placed you. Do you hate the city you live in? Like most people like me who moved to Western Kansas eight years ago? I was like, I'm out of here in three years. Sayonara, and here I am, right? I'm not, I, don't, I haven't made any plans to move either. Do you hate where you live? Honor God where you're at. Do you wish your family situation was different? Do you wish your in-laws were better? Don't look anywhere, right? Do you wish you had better in-laws? Sorry about you, you can't change them. God says you're not allowed to anyway. Honor God where you're at. Do the best you can with the family you've been given. Do you have a kid who's a black sheep in the family and you're like, what on earth is with this kid? Honor God and love them and do your best with them instead of always looking for the next thing. Holy cow, some of my generation needs to hear this. We're always looking for the next thing. We're always looking for green grass. In my soul, career tenures are, have skyrocketed the wrong way. They've ground rocketed tenures at jobs. Why? Because people are always looking for something better. Always gonna move towns to get a $1 an hour raise. And with each successive generation, we are losing the art of staying put and honoring God in one place for a lifetime. I remember seeing across the table, from someone who is in Garden City and they were looking to move. And unfortunately, I didn't convince them not to. But I said, and I believe this, and I, I'm not speaking from experience, but I, I'm involved enough in our community to know people who've been in our community a long time. There is something so beautiful about being in a church for a long time and sticking it out. And some of y'all are an example of that and praise God for that. There's something beautiful about that. You've lived through one pastor. I don't know how many, Rick. Two pastors, three pastors, a lot of pastors. There's something good about that. There's something beautiful about staying in a community for decades. I know several people in our community. There's one that lives right down Center Street here. He's been in our community a long time, really involved. He's an architect here. And he's, he's, God has used him to do all sorts of things. I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he's been an asset to our community. Why? Because you can only do certain things in life if you just stick it out and stay put and bloom where you're planted. So many of us, here's what we think. I just need to change this and life would be better. And Paul says, honor God where you're at. Honor God where you're at. Your health, you wish it was better? I get it. I wish your health was better too for some of you. Honor God with what you got instead of hoping he'll change your situation. Paul's very convinced that we should stay where we're at if at all possible, right? So much so he tells slaves not to obsess about seeking their freedom. That's pretty radical, right? Bloom where you're planted, but here's the reality that Paul also recognizes. God tells us to bloom where we're planted, but God also does some replanting. You following me? 
God tells you to bloom where you're planted, but sometimes God changes your situation. You ought to be anchored in your current circumstances and honor God in whatever situation he's placed you, but you are not chained to your current circumstances, okay? And this passage is peppered with all sorts of commands that recognize such practical realities in life where God gives us freedom and agency to change our circumstances, but we must do so in a way that is honoring to God. And so what Paul does is he tells us all throughout this passage that if, if God allows your situation to change, honor him in whatever is next. If God allows your situation to change, honor him in whatever is next. So practical. You know what he says? This is great. If remaining single is impractical, honor God by getting married. That's what Paul says. So he says, I would that every man was married, or unmarried, I mean. He says, I wish every man would stay single because you could do more for God there. But look at verse number eight. Or sorry, verse number nine. But if they cannot contain, what is he talking about? He's talking about the fire of desire and passion. He says, if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn, indicating with passion. Okay, now what Paul's not saying here, single folks or those who have single ones that you would mentor or shepherd through these decisions, he's not saying, well, you're not, you, you need to have sex within marriage, so go get married. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that, yeah, we honor God in who we marry. Paul seems to be pretty convinced about that, right? And he addresses that even in this passage. But if remaining single and serving the Lord Um, though it has its benefits, is a stumbling block to you, it's okay not just to get married, but to seek marriage, to pursue marriage. Paul's not encouraging anyone to rush into marriage so that they can say that they're not sinning. Unfortunately, I know many young Christian people who rushed to marriage so that they could say they weren't sinning, but there's so many Christians who had an incredibly short first marriage because they rushed into marriage because they didn't want to say that they were fornicating. Well, that's not what Paul's saying either. But I want you to think about this. We live in a culture that is, that is delaying marriage. The average age of marriage gets later and later in our culture. Why is that? Because there's a lot of people that assume, number one, that it's okay to cohabitate but not to be married. That's sin. But, but they, they think that, that marriage is just some loose title. And so what happens a lot of times is that even Christians can kind of buy into this. And what Paul's trying to teach us is that there is something sacred to getting married to avoid sinning. That's okay. Parents, I want to challenge you. And I'm not speaking from experience, but I want you to think about this. As you're raising your kids you may have a kid that wants to get married in what you think is a very young part of their life. Now, I think there's pros and cons to getting married later or earlier in life, okay? But we need, what we need to do as parents or as grandparents, I, I want you to encourage yourself to think about, while you're thinking about other things as you're counseling this person, to think about this principle. It's better to marry than to burn. Paul seems to say that there is something God-honoring about rather than holding out and 
waiting till a certain age to get married, if two people share the same faith and have the maturity, or at least the, the starting point of maturity, to get married, that it's better to marry than to burn. My dad always told me, and this isn't in the passage, but, but he does, he, he, I think he, he's right, that there is something about growing old with somebody, that living life with somebody, learning life with somebody. There is something to that. There are negatives to that. I, I just did a wedding for people who are older than me. I've been married almost 10 years. And as they were talking about their relationship, I thought, y'all need way less help than I did when I was about to get married. I was so stinking selfish and immature. And my wife was immature too, to a certain degree. She would tell you that. And so we had way more arguments probably than we should have had because I was 21 and my wife was 20 when we got married. That, that created some things we had to work through. But hey, praise God, we honored God where we were at. We stuck it out and I'm thankful for it. I would have much rather gotten married at that age than waiting if I could do it over again, right? But then Paul says this. Again, he's really practical. He says, if your spouse leaves you, if your spouse abandons you, you're not chained to that relationship. You are free to marry someone else. That's what this passage is peppered with as well. Verses 15 through 17 and verses 39 through 40. Now again, this is the same guy who said, don't, a woman should not leave her husband. A man should not leave his wife. And yet he says that in some situations, you don't have to feel obligated to that covenant if the other person broke that covenant. Now, I don't have time to te teach a comprehensive lesson on divorce and remarriage in the Bible, but I just want to give you a tidbit. Jesus, in Matthew 19, gives us one, what I think, I don't have a better way to say it, but one allowable reason for divorce, right? And it's adultery, breaking of that covenant. But Paul here expands that list. He says, as a, as a Christian, you can, you can leave that covenant and forge a new one. I think by implication, if Paul says it's okay to break away from that marriage, then it's okay to begin a new one, that he adds a second condition. And I'm going to add a third one by implication. He says that the second condition for a, a Christian being allowed to leave or divorce or whatever is abandonment. Look at verse number 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. These, these are encouraging words to those who've been divorced. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So he says, if your spouse left you, don't let your conscience be burdened by the fact that they left you. You, you are not bound to that relationship. Now, again, I think the overall tenor of this is, hey, you should try and work things out wherever possible. We should fight for our marriages. But Paul says, if they leave you, don't feel bound to them. You can depart in peace. Verse number 39, that same word bound shows up again in verse 39, and here's what he says. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, right? But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, and here's a good principle for marriage, only in the Lord, okay? You only marry someone who's a Christian, right? But he says, if this person has died, then you are free to remarry. So here's what Paul's saying. We, a Christian is allowed, though they should stick it out, they're allowed to leave this marriage under cases of adultery 
And praise God, I know several marriages who've undergone that type of stress, and God has, God has brought healing to that type of marriage. And praise God for that. But he also says abandonment is a cause for divorce. Abandonment, right? And I, I know plenty of people who their spouse left them. Uh, I have a family member who I just found out two weeks ago. Uh, didn't know they were ever married before. Very close family member. And she was telling me how her husband just didn't want to be married anymore. I want to work it out. Nope, I'm out. Military guy just left, you know, next town, moved on, and has his own life now. Paul says, you're not bound to that person. It's not your fault, right? You're not bound to them, and you can remarry. And I think verse 39 gives us a third category for, for allowable divorce or remarriage, and that is forced abandonment. So if you're trying to process what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, which is a very complicated subject, and by the way, there are good Christians who love the Bible who have different ways of viewing this, and that's okay. Not everything in the Bible is perfectly clear, okay? But what I, I, I'm pretty convinced is that adultery, abandonment, and forced abandonment are categories in which Christians are free from this covenant. Paul gives the example of death. Well, it's kind of an abandonment in a way, right? They're up there, and you're down here, and you're, you can't be together, you're free to remarry. But there's other situations of forced abandonment that are, are at least as heartbreaking, right? Abuse. Is a Christian bound to stay in a marriage where they're being abused? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's forced abandonment. Right? And then addiction. I mean, there, there are a lot of other things that can fit into this category. I think God calls it to discernment. And then Paul says this, okay? So he talks about singleness and marriage. He says, now, here's the next situation. He says, if a slave has an opportunity for freedom, avail yourself to that opportunity for freedom and honor God as a freed person. Now, I don't know. Are there anyone in here who's a slave? Okay. Now, give me just a minute to work through this, and I'll apply it to where you're at, okay? But you need to read this. Scripture's preserved for a reason, and so it teaches us. Verses 21 through 23. By the way, if you're looking for a good passage, if you've got a friend who says, ooh, the Christianity isn't uh, credible because they endorse slavery, well, maybe you should read verses 21 through 23. Paul is fairly neutral, but he's pretty clearly on the side of freedom. Look at verse 21. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou beest made, may, or sorry, mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called... In the Lord, being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he also that is called being free is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Does that sound like a theology on slavery? Paul says, I don't know about you, but Christ is the only one you should be enslaved to. You are his servant. So he says, I'm not for slavery, but listen, one apostle who was not viewed well by the culture couldn't just change all of world slavery, okay? But the Christian principles, by the way, that Paul writes are the core of how England in particular, which then made its way to America, started fighting against and changing the laws about slavery. And so let's not give Christianity too little credit about this. Now, what does this mean to you, okay? Because you're not a slave, although you may feel like it sometimes with your job or, I don't know, maybe with your, your spouse, Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. There are situations in life where you feel trapped. Are there not? And we think life would be better if. Honor God where you're at, okay? And barring it's not being unfaithful to a spouse, if God gives you opportunity to change your job, 
honor God in changing your job. If God gives you opportunity, Christian, to move to a different town, I hope he doesn't. I want you all to stay here. If he gives you opportunity, there is nothing the Bible says you have to live in Garden City. You're free, but honor God. Make sure you plug into a good church. Do it right. Leave your workplace right. Don't be a bum employee for your last four weeks of employment. Do it right. Honor God in the transition. Your situation may change, but your responsibility to honor God does not change. Your situation may change, but your responsibility to honor God does not change. Do you wish you weren't single? Well, first of all, don't worry that you are less useful to God as a single person. Paul makes the case that you could be more useful. Use that time. But if you wish you were married, Paul says, go ask that Christian lady out on a date for goodness sakes. It's kind of what he says. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Do what you can, right? He says, if the opportunity to be freed from slavery comes, take advantage of it. And I think the same thing is true. If you're single and you wish you were married and God brings someone in your life that you can honor God in marrying, take advantage of that opportunity. You don't have to stay in, in that situation. Be careful. Don't try to manipulate stuff. Don't try to read the tea leaves so you can justify doing something that's unwise. Hey, are you on your second marriage? Do you know someone who's on their second marriage and maybe they can't even say about their first divorce that they were divorced for an allowable reason? Hey, I understand. We all sin. We all make mistakes. But you know what I think Paul teaches us? Honor God where you're at. And I know so many Christians who are on their second marriage who are stellar examples of a godly marriage. I know a lot. I know some that are, their marriage is so good that it would shock you they're on the second marriage. Honor God where you're at. But if your situation changes, your responsibility to honor God does not change. I want to ask you a few questions. I know we've covered a lot, but this is a very practical message. Let me ask you this. Are you all in where God has you now? All in. Are you all in in your marriage? Say, well, I think I am. Well, I don't know. Read verses one through 10. Are you all in and giving yourself over to your spouse? Are you all in and making your relationship work for a lifetime? Some of us, we try to coast. Are you all in in singleness? Are you doing more I think what Paul says, and I, I want to be kind about this, but I think he sets the bar higher for single Christians. Are you all in with your kids? Are you all in with your church? Are you all in with your city? Are you all in with your job and your community? Are you all in? Honor God by being all in wherever you are. Bloom where you're planted. And if God changes your situation, honor him in the way you change. Don't feel chained to your circumstances. God is not a cruel master. There is no perfect will of God that says you have to live in one city for the rest of your life, okay? If you heard that youth camp, I'm sorry, you were, you were misled by a well-meaning person, okay? 
There is no perfect will of God where you have to stay in one job or one place or whatever. If you change your situation, honor God in it. Honor God in it. Are you all in? Let's pray together. Father, I hope on behalf of this